This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're awfully glad you could join us again today. And we're coming to you live from the Ringler Associates annual meeting in beautiful, sunny Newport Beach, California. And uh, as someone who just came from the snowy, cold Northeast, that feels awful good to me. We're going to talk about a subject today that's really right on the cutting edge, and that is the Medicare set-aside secondary payer issue and some of the new rules that will be going into effect very soon. And to help me sort through all of this are two special guests on the program today. First, let me welcome attorney Nancy Adel, rhymes with ladle, (laughs) (laughs) senior partner at the Los Angeles law firm of Adel and Pollock. And the firm has a primary focus on tort law, and they've been major players in the uh, litigation arena, especially involving catastrophic losses. Uh, Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here. And it sounds like you're awfully busy. We are very busy and uh, tempted to spend time out in the sun, but we manage to keep working. (laughs) Well, busy is a good thing. And also joining us today is one of my favorite Ringler Associates, my colleague Teddy Snyder from the Southern California Office of Ringler Associates, located in Beverly Hills, and that sounds pretty swanky there, Teddy. We're in 90210. (laughs) Well, that sounds good to me. Teddy's also an attorney, and uh, she brings unique perspective and creativity to designing, presenting, and negotiating structured settlements. She's been doing it for uh, a while and has about 20 years of litigation experience, and Teddy is what I like to call one of Ringler Associates' subject matter experts. She brings a lot of that to the table. So let's get to the meat of it uh, here, uh, everyone. Let's talk about the basics of the Medicare secondary payer rules. Why don't we talk about the statute that's, that's out there and, and some of the things that are happening around the, the statute? The basic statute, Larry, has been on the books since 1981. It's the Medicare secondary payer statute, and the lawyers can find it at 42 U.S.C. 1395Y. And what it says basically is if there's somebody else out there a health insurance uh, plan, a liability insurance plan, self-insurance, liability insurance, health insurance, that that would be what's known as the primary payer. And Medicare is a secondary payer. They would only pay after the uh, resources of the primary payer have been exhausted. And that makes some sense because that means, you know, we're, we are really the Medicare folks that are providing it to taxpayers, and it makes sense that any private oriented uh, payment you know, device should be spent first before the, the taxpayers have to step in. I mean, that, that seems to be the basis of the, of, the litiga- of, of the law. The philosophy is that if someone is compensated for certain medical expenses, they shouldn't be able to take that money and go lose it on the tables in Vegas and turn to the U.S. taxpayer. Exactly. Okay, that's interesting. What about uh, how, how the right of recovery is uh, handled, uh, Nancy? Why don't you talk about that? In the real world, it just doesn't seem to come out as idealistically as you've just presented it. Yes, in theory, the taxpayer shouldn't have to bear the burden and the plaintiff is getting compensated for their injury. 
But frequently the plaintiff is not getting fully compensated for their injury, and we in the plaintiff's bar have to keep our eye on the ball, which is our client, and maximizing their recovery. At the same time, we've had to deal with the current law, which says if your client has gotten recovery from Medicare, in other words, if Medicare has paid bills that arose from the injury, then Medicare is entitled to get its money back. And we've had an obligation to do that, and we do do it. And it's not easy negotiating with Medicare, but we do it. Well, paying back those liens, you know, is the obligation of almost every case that we settle. Uh, That language is in there, and uh, the plaintiff attorney, I know, certainly has the obligation to do that. And uh, as you said, it's not easy to compromise these days. They they have a much tougher position that they take. And that's uh, all part of the game that we all get involved with in these cases. So, Teddy, talk about... What's new in the law? What's, what's happening now? Well, before we get to what's new, I want to sort of bring you up to speed. As I said, the, the Medicare secondary payer law has been on the books since 1981. And up until 2001, it had applications solely to expenses paid by Medicare pre-settlement or verdict. Um, what changed in 2001 is the people at CMS, which administers uh, the laws on this subject... Somebody woke up and said, just a second, in the workers' compensation area, uh, those people are getting compensation for post-settlement, for future expenses, and many times they are going out, spending the money on other things, and Medicare and the taxpayers being called on to pay for those future expenses, those post-settlement, post, well, in the comp area, it's always settlement expenses. So through a series of memoranda that were published by CMS, they set out the rules which we're working under today in the workers' compensation area, um, which require a Medicare set-aside for industrially related future Medicare-eligible expenses. That amount has to be set aside from the settlement placed in a special account and used for those expenses. And we can talk a little bit more about the experience that Workers' Comp has given us going forward into the new age. Well, I think most of us that have been involved in the business and most of the listeners to Ringler Radio have probably heard several shows that we've done on Medicare set-asides in the Workers' Comp arena where, you know, some of those threshold amounts of a $250,000 case and, and, and if someone is el- going to be eligible for Medicare in a certain period of time, certain parameters are set in place by the, by the law that make MSAs, you know, mandatory and necessary there. And then we talked about how to fund them and all that. But my understanding is that the new law you're talking about is going to, is dealing more with the liability third-party area. The new law um, adds certain sections to the statute I previously cited, and it requires one thing rather specifically and then creates what I would call the open door. It requires that the primary payers identify who are the Medicare beneficiaries who are going to be receiving liability money, pursuant to settlement or, or verdict or judgment, and provide the names of those people to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which again is working through CMS. The law also states that, let's just talk about liability carriers as sort of a generic yeah. term, such other information as the Secretary shall specify that will help them on the coordination of benefits, including recovery. Well, such other information as the Secretary shall specify is, as I said, a pretty pretty broad open door, 
And many people are speculating that this is going to result in another series of CMS memos, which will result in Medicare set-asides being required in the liability area as well. Well, this is the kind of the nightmare scenario that all of us in in the business are, are talking about. Uh, the concept of having to apply these Medicare set-asides to the liability arena. So, Nancy, tell us about how you view what's just been talked about by Teddy. Is it coming to pass? Are we going to be getting getting ready to do Medicare set-asides in the liability area? And what is it going to mean for all these claim departments out there that are handling these cases? Well, speaking uh, as a lawyer, speaking from the trenches, uh, I look to somebody like Teddy or I look to the library when the time comes up to get to the specifics of the statute. What I'm thinking about today is how is this going to affect my practice? How is this going to affect my clients? And there's good news and bad news. The good news is it's going to force us, well, the short answer is yes. Unless the law changes between now and July 9, we're going to have to start looking at the future and Medicare set-asides for the future. The bad news is it's going to be more dealing with the bureaucracy, more work for the lawyer, and potentially less cash available for our client. That's my worry. That's interesting, but let me just make sure I understand the timing of the law. What was the date you mentioned? July 9, July, July 2009. July Sorry. 2009, Just right. left something out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the other thing I just want to give the flip side of that is it's going to force plaintiff's lawyers to look at the future, even in perhaps smaller cases where you might not be so fast to do it. So we're going to have to be looking at what our clients' future medical bills are going to be. Well, we do that mm-hmm. anyway. Looking at what their long-term future, lifetime future is going to be as it relates to this. Let me uh, ask a question. Teddy, you know, one of the things around the workers' comp side of the of this MSA s- scenario is, you know, if a, if a claim department, for example, if a carrier doesn't do the right thing, doesn't set it up, doesn't perform the, the, the right uh, under the law, they get penalized. Is the, are the penalties going to be in place for carriers on this, this end of it as well? Well, the new statute provides a penalty of $1,000 per day per claimant for the failure by the carrier to identify these Medicare beneficiaries to CMS. Now, the timing is that it has to be done within a specified time, which we don't know yet, after conclusion of the case. But it's the $1,000 a day per claimant, which has got a number of liability carriers Concerned. Quite concerned. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to assume that uh, coming out of all this, there are going to be some tweaks to the system. They're going to have to be from a practical standpoint. I mean, CMS is overloaded to, to begin with trying to deal with all They're these. way behind. They yeah. are. And just, you know, from my perspective, not only, we don't even like to give the insurance carriers our client's social security number, and we shouldn't have to. So you're talking privacy issues. But now we have to not only give their social security number, but maybe provide access to medical records that are not directly related to the injury in order to get the full scope, how much is going to be future for injury, how much future for other areas. It's, it's kind and the delay from dealing with CMS is going to be a huge factor. So you have you have the Medicare area, you know, kind of clashing with the HIPAA requirements. So the, you know the government is kind of imploding onto itself there. What uh, what about uh, you, we're talking about settlements? What about verdicts uh, that come in? Other types of judgments that come in? Uh, what do we do there in terms of uh, the Medicare set asides? Well, you asked me a question. I love to answer because I just finished a large verdict where we got a big apportionment by the jury for future medical, $420,000. 
In that case, our client was potentially Medicare eligible, but we didn't have to deal with any of this because the law hasn't gone into effect yet. If we did have to deal with it, I would argue that it's a post-verdict issue because most jurisdictions have the collateral source rule. We don't want the jury to know how much is being paid by someone other than the plaintiff. So I would say whether there's going to be a Medicare set aside and how much it's going to be should be something that's decided outside the province of the jury. I don't know whether others are going to agree with me or not. I think the appeals court will figure that one out. I suspect. What about, uh, Teddy, about the advantages of annuitizing these Medicare set-aside scenarios when they come up? Because obviously monies have to be put in these MSAs to take care of these you know, future needs, and that's really been a, a boon to the, to the structured settlement industry because annuities are being used for most of these. And Do you see... It, as kind of the silver lining in the cloud of this new law, do you see an increase in the number of structured settlements that are going to be utilized? Well, structuring a Medicare set-aside is a great advantage. It creates unrestricted money for the claimant, and it may make a settlement offer more acceptable. Let me let me explain that. Sure. When a Medicare set-aside is funded right now, uh, under the current operating rules that we're under for a workers' comp, there's two ways to fund it. One is all in a lump sum. If it's done that way, there's no discount for present value. A dollar to be paid in 20 years, you have to put a dollar in today. Only through the structured settlement can you get the discount for present value. So perhaps a $100,000 Medicare set-aside could be purchased for $65,000. Another way we reduce the price is through what's called a rated age. And I know many of our listeners are familiar with that. It's where the structured settlement broker creates a personalized mortality table for this particular claimant. And it's a pricing mechanism. I like to say it's a pricing mechanism, not a command from on high. And uh, it allows the purchase of a lifetime annuity at a price below what would otherwise be available. Um, You're talking about because of the medical or physical conditions of the claimant that may have a a shortened life expectancy because of these issues. And that the reason for that shortened life expectancy may or may not have anything to do with the claim that's being litigated. Correct, correct. The third reason why annuitizing the Medicare set-aside is cheaper than funding it as a lump sum is, again, under our current rules in the workers' comp arena, the companies, the Medicare set-aside allocation companies, which create the reports that these are based on have to use a median rated age. The structured settlement broker goes out, canvasses the market, and gets an array of bids, essentially, uh, based on the likely life expectancy. The MSA company uses the median. The structured settlement broker goes for the best possible return consistent with safety. Interesting. Let me go back to um, some of the legal issues here. We talked about the privacy concerns that uh, you have, uh, Nancy. What about confidentiality provisions and settlement agreements that say, don't, don't talk about this? I've got to tell you, I am uh, strongly against confidentiality agreements. I think it's good for everyone if this information is freely shared. So if this helps to make confidentiality agreements more difficult, I say hip hip hooray. However... That's an interesting perspective, yeah. But I think that it, if you had to give a confidence, if you had to have the other side pay for a confidentiality agreement, which you then gave them, that confidentiality agreements can be structured, and they are structured, that allow you and, in fact, require you to still report to government agencies. Sure. I think we can do that. Sure. Well, let's take a hypothetical situation. So let's say an accident happened in uh, 
last year, January 2007. And let's say suit is filed uh, the end of this year, December 2008. And it takes, uh, let's say, a year until it's resolved. And the injured person that was completely disabled is now, you know, getting the, whatever settlement funds are there. This is obviously past the July 2009 time frame you talked about. Will the rules apply to that case, or is it, is it prospective into, to something beyond July 2009, or if the case arose now but it's settled after, well, how does that all fit? When you look at the history of this legislation, it's not a uh, clear-cut line that this is only going into effect in July of 2009. In fact, I hesitate to say this, but if I were on the government side, I might argue that it could go into effect at any time. It's just they happen to have passed regulations that say it's not going to happen until July of 2009. They could have enforced it sooner, and I even think about sometimes whether we should be thinking about that, but they've chosen not to. But I'm going to say because of that ambiguity, I think that, number one, if you have a case that's coming up on the July 2009 date, it would behoove you to settle it before that date if you could. (laughs) And if you can't, I think you have to account for it. And if you choose not to, based on some theory that it's only prospective, you'd have to put in a lot of waivers and disclaimers because I wouldn't be so confident about that. Another issue is how do you prepare for that imminent deadline? Um, The statute on its terms goes into effect July 1st, 2009, including the identification of the claimant as a Medicare beneficiary and that amorphous such other information, which hopefully we'll get more about. But here's the problem. Should discovery be going on now as to whether the plaintiff is a Medicare beneficiary? If you've got a case that's going to conclude on July 2nd of 2009, it's awfully late and may encounter some resistance trying for the carrier trying to get all the information they're going to need to comply at that time. Well, I, I think part of the questionnaire that, that, that are asked of these claimants by either claim representatives or lawyers is, are going to be these issues as to uh, their eligibility for Medicare. You know, their age certainly is a factor, but other things as well. So it's just going to become a few more boxes on a form that, that people are going to have to fill out and really pay attention to. I just envision it maybe happening a little differently where we would be disclosing information that would be for Medicare set-aside purposes only, not for use in the, lit- in the litigation, for example. That might be one way to, uh, to solve some of these problems because otherwise we're not, it wouldn't be fair to our clients yeah. to disclose that information. Well, so I'm sure there'll be a few seminars around that issue. There's one other thing that we haven't really talked about that I think we should. Often there's limited funds that are going to be paying the climate insurance limitations, $50,000, $100,000, you know, and suppose the future needs are greater than the policy limits. How is that going to be apportioned and is there a, a provision for apportionment? Well, that cut falls under the old adage you don't get uh, blood from a stone. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was a turnip. <laughs> well, it could be a turnip, too. <laughs> we are in a vegetarian green state here. All right. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and we'll be back in just a minute with attorney Nancy Adel and uh, my good friend Teddy Snyder from Ringler Associates. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. 
Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and glad you joined us. Uh, we're talking today about Medicare secondary payer issues and uh, the new and somewhat scary rules that are going to take effect in July 2009. And uh, I think it's very important for all of you to pay attention to this show because it's going to, going to provide for significant changes in the way you do business in the future. Well, Teddy, as in most cases where annuities are potentially involved, it's often advantageous for the plaintiff and uh, or her or his attorney if the settlement broker is brought in early in the case rather than later in the case. And uh, that may even be more important in, in the instances of what we're talking about today, right? Certainly, um, if a Medicare set-aside is going to have to be prepared, uh, there needs to be some lead time for that and also to obtain the rated age that I mentioned. Yeah, for sure. You know, you mentioned these uh, third-party companies that, that tend to put these Medicare set-aside uh, agreements and uh, really factor in the dollar amounts that are going to be required for the future, uh, they're going to be busy people for sure. And I know a lot of us use those uh, those entities. That's going to be, and they're going to be very important in this process. Well, after the Medicare set-aside is in place, uh, how does the, the plaintiff actually receive payments from the, from the set-aside uh, arrangement? Uh, and how is it administered? Um, what happens with an annuitized set-aside is there is a seed money amount, which goes into an account. It can be either administered custodially or self-administered. And then annual payments thereafter are made by the life company with whom the structured settlement was placed. Nancy, what about the concept of getting pre-approval from CMS before this all gets into place? I mean, I know in the workers' comp arena, it slows down the process tremendously to get these pre-approvals. As you said, it's backed up. They're backed up tremendously. Are we going to have these pre-approval rules here in this arena? My guess is it's not going to be a pre-approval rule. My hope is that there will be a pre-approval option uh, so that the plaintiff's lawyers can have the option of presenting what they're proposing and then getting word back from Medicare. But uh, this can take forever. I wanted to share with everybody the story that I experienced in the right of recovery where we had a case where we didn't even think there was any right of recovery under California law, but Medicare felt differently. They issued a finding saying how much they were owed. I said, oh, no, no. They sent us another finding saying how much they were owed plus 10%. And uh, we agreed to pay them and then decide to appeal it before the Medicare, which is the same as the Social Security Board, that was three years ago. Wow. My clients are still out that money. So uh, if you don't 
have pre-approval, you stand to lose money down the road. And if you do wait for pre-approval, you're still losing money because it's not coming into your client's pocket. So it's a real conundrum. Well, can you actually settle the case? Uh, If you can't get the pre-approval, can you actually make a final, full and final settlement of of, of a case you've got? I believe, and we'll see what Teddy has to say. And by the way, I want to just give a pitch for early contact with your uh, Ringler associate because that's what I do with Teddy and the source. It's really an invaluable source and this is how uh, because they're doing this all the time they're more up with the regulations than any lawyer who's also out litigating cases could possibly be well thank you that's interesting teddy what what do you think about uh, that whole issue of trying to get these uh, payments out there and and delaying the settlement of the case itself i mean with these pre-approvals you know certain times in, in some workers comp cases for example if you can't get approval they linger they linger, and you, you can't get the uh, the court approval on some of these comp cases. What about what? What do you envision here? It has been very complicated in the workers' comp area, but we have had um, almost seven years of experience, and many of us have learned to do different workarounds, um, settlement documents, which provide if there is a shortfall, how will it be handled? The parties can agree. Oh, if. CMS comes back and wants more money, we can agree to divide it 50-50, 70-30, any number you care to imagine. Another option is a holdback. A certain amount will be held back from payment of the entire settlement pending CMS approval and then will be released in accordance with the CMS response. What you're really saying is the custom and practice of the last few years on the comp side hopefully will apply and help us on the liability side. And we also have ways, I mean, dealing with CMS is a little bit like dealing with the IRS. So, you know, they think they're right and they want their money and they thanks want a, plus Thanks a lot. <laughs> that, 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 that encourages all of us. <laughs> uh, and on the other hand, yeah. there are arguments that we have to use. And there are arguments that you use whenever somebody wants to take a piece of your client's money. Mm-hmm. You know, you argue for one thing, first of all, it, seems counterintuitive, but you want these set-aside trust, set-aside accounts, not trust, to be as low as possible so that the rest of the money actually goes to the client. Mm -hmm. And there are arguments you can use, such as even, my client was at fault for this accident, and therefore this is a greatly diminished recovery, and Medicare, you shouldn't get anything. Or because there's only a limited amount of insurance money, my client is not being made whole, and therefore until my client is made whole, you shouldn't get anything. So there are lots of tools we can use. Of course, those sound, those sound like arguments you make after the case is done, because you're certainly arguing that, that, he's, that they're deserving of a lot more before that time. Well, let's talk about uh, one last question to both of you here. Uh, Nancy, what's your best advice to other plaintiff lawyers that are out there in the audience listening to this? How do they get ready for all these changes that are coming in 2009? What's your best advice for them? Keep your eye on the ball, and that is maximum recovery for your client. And the way to do that is to be in compliance with the regulation, but despite what I just said, not be intimidated. It's your job to be the advocate, to be ready to fight, to make sure that your client gets the most coming to them. That that sounds good to me. What about uh, you, Teddy? What do you think? Well, I would say both attorneys who represent plaintiffs and the carriers themselves, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, announcements from CMS in the next 18 months, which is going to clarify how these things will be handled. There are some carriers I know now who are saying, let's do a good faith guess as to what an allocation should be, and they're already looking at those numbers now. So even though we have 18 months to plan ahead, Indeed, that planning must 
begin now. Interesting. Well, we have a lot to face in the next, uh, not, not, not the least of which is the new election coming in November. Maybe, and maybe, do you think maybe the new election will cause the Congress to come in that might change any of these rules? I can only hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, I want to thank both of my guests, Nancy Adel and Teddy Snyder. It's been a tremendous discussion. And if any of you out there want to contact Nancy to get the, the measure of her expertise, Nancy, how would they reach you? A as in Adel, P as in Pollock, InjuryLaw.com. Great. And Teddy, how about yourself? I'm at T. Snyder at RinglerAssociates.com. You can find my smiling face on our website in the Beverly Hills office. That's, that's uh, great. And, you know, you can reach all the Ringler Associates on RinglerAssociates.com. And uh, all the pictures are there, Teddy, even mine. That's a good thing to see. But you were younger in years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not updating that too soon. Well, I want to thank you again for listening, all you out there. I want you now to go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network.